we do the lyric because one, one of the things that I've just been insistent on from the beginning, people have been tolerant of so much here, um, is that there's a musical quality to literature, really good literature. All the epics were written to a metric line. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Dante. Paradise Lost will do the same. Um, there's a strong musical element in all the epics. That's one of the qualities of the ancient epic. Up through Milton. The novel represents a radical change because that musical element drops out. But even good writers write with an ear for music. If you, if, if you read, for example, Melville's Moby Dick, you, you, you couldn't help but hear a cadence in some of his lines. There's a beauty and a rhythm. Melville's a great writer, like all the writers. Shakespeare, we did Shakespeare. Shakespeare's writing plays to a iambic pentameter line. So there's a strong musical element, and too often in academic circles, because teachers are teaching intellectually in their heads, they just ignore it because they're reading for ideas. And I didn't want to do that here because it, the, the musical quality of literature is really important. It's one of its effects. I believe that it's, it, it's partly intended to um, quiet our critical mind um, the way music does when you sit and listen to music. So there's a quieting. It doesn't have the sharp edges of analytical thought. You know, poetry is, is, is intended to awaken the mind and the heart and do something with both of them. So I didn't want to lose that um, because so much of the work we're, we're doing is intellectual, it's theoretical, it's looking at themes and things like that. So we, we've been reading uh, lyric poems. Generally they're short. I've been wanting to do T.S. Eliot's four quartets from the beginning, but it's just been a really long thing and I've avoided it. But, but finally I just said, let's do it. But, but to do it, we have to break it down into sections each week. So we're going through the four quartets. The analog is music. It's called the four quartets. There's four quartets, four different voices. They're all dealing roughly with the same thing, but in a in a, on, a, on a variation. It's playing off of it in some way. And each quartet has five sections. It's like a musical quartet. So each one presents a certain dominant theme and then plays off of it in each one of the sections. So we've been reading through them. And last time we were supposed to finish East Coker, the second one, but we didn't get it. So um, we'll, get a, we'll get a copy to you of the, because we've got copies. I we, just I, did. Oh, you did? Oh, thanks, Marcy. Thank you. Oh, East Coker? <clears throat> I gave it to her. Okay. So um, that's how we begin. Any prayer requests for this week? I know a lot's going on. Christmas is a time of real joy, but I know it, a lot of heavy things get carried through Christmas too. So any requests? Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us, um, for your offering this morning at Mass, the readings, your words to us, all that you ask, um, the great love you show by asking as much as you do. Um, 
What a great honor. How hard it is to do the things you ask of us. Um, what a great honor to have them asked. It's a sign of how much you love us. Um, that we would ask those things of each other um, more than we do to be with you. Help us all to do that, that we make you more present in our lives. I ask a blessing on the work that we're doing. Um, help us to see you, to find you. Um, the poets are prophetic in often showing us things that are not easy to see, and often um, they can delight us the way Faulkner does, to know a joy in watching people struggle with each other. Help us to, um, to open our minds and hearts to, um, to, um, to all that they have to offer and um, help us to take what we learn out into the world and make it living, to make you present, your kingdom present in all that we do. I ask a blessing on um, um, Tracy and Madison, in some ways most of all Tracy, um, to carry her with all of Madison's struggles. Strengthen her in her hope, enlighten her mind, help her to do things that will help that young girl um, to have the courage to risk at times too. Watch over all those we love who are struggling. Um, help them please and draw us all to you. What a delight it would be if we were all to meet in your kingdom later um, to laugh and look back at what we did together. Let it be for all of us. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, let's look at, I'm not going to make any comments because I didn't even look at it before I came, so I can't. Um, remember, <laughs> there I go, remember um, the one of the major themes of East Coker is the sense of the cyclical nature to things. Things come and go. It's like it's like a variation on Ecclesiastic. There's a time for this, there's a time for this, there's a time for growing, there's a time for dying. If that's all there is, if everything in life is cyclical, we're back in the problem that we, um, we encountered in Burnt Norton. Um, if all time is eternally present, if we're just in a cyclical world, all time is unredeemable. I hope that's clear. If we're just stuck in a temporal order, we're stuck there. There's nothing we can do. It'll, it's the end. A beginning will take place, we come into the world, we'll pass out of it, we'll die. That's it. There's nothing in time that can redeem us. Yeah, we come into a world that's defined in terms of decay. Everything in, everything in nature decays. And death, mortality hangs over us, right? Our faith is that somebody entered, came from eternity into the temporal order, the order of time, to redeem it. So Eliot's opening lines in Burt Norton, if all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. We're back in that same problem in East Coker because if all time is cyclical, things just repeat, yeah, it's a variation on that theme, then there's no redemption still, okay? So what he's been doing in East Coker is focusing on the way in which the world gives the appearance of being cyclical in everything it does, and yet, showing us that there's this still point. And I, I thought the opening section, you know, when he talks about the still point and the 
Um, we've gone over those sections. Remember before um, in Burton Norton, the potpourri, the echo, all things that are still present even though they're gone. And the still point of the wheel, remember the, the wheel um, circles, but at the center it's still. And all those images of the still point in a dance, in a stare, in the vase. Remember we went through all those. So in a set, I mean, this is really, really it's, what a brilliant mind. What he's doing is taking the world the way a scientist would look at it, exactly the way a scientist. And he's given evidence of all these different things that have the still point at its center. It's like he's making a demonstration. He's giving evidence for showing it's everywhere. So we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, our mind should awaken. It's, it's, I mean, if we were in Dante's world, we say, there's nothing going on in the world. I mean, one of the purposes for this class, do we find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him? God is present everywhere. Do we see him? You know, one of, one of my, you know this, one of my favorite poems is that supernatural love with the young four-year-old. You know, she's a mother looking back and she pricks her finger and it's a moment of participating in the crucifixion. Who would think that? Little girl pricks a finger, you go put a band-aid on it and go about your business. How many people stop and say, is God there? Is Christ there? You know? So, so often we go through our days half-blind, unawake, half-asleep, whatever, you know. So, part of what we've been doing is hopefully being awake to a natural order, what's going on in the natural order that reveals Christ. And Eliot's been doing that in East Coker with this theme of the cyclical nature of things, okay? That even though things seem to just come and go, there's something there that always is. Okay? Okay. Section, the last section of... You better be right that I didn't read this before because I go to Friday morning and they say I read it there or that he didn't read it there, so that I already read it here. You guys are in serious trouble. I wasn't here at all, so don't mind me. <laughs> I always come to our Didn't know, okay. <laughs> okay, that's a guarantee then. Thank we'll you, Joe. We'll blame Jay. No, I'll that's, that's why he wants to do it. <laughs> Section five. Um, you remember Section four were all these images of the fall, the ruined millionaire, the hospital, the nurse, the doctor. The irony that all of these people are helping other people while all of them are in a fallen condition themselves. How many, how many people acknowledge it, particularly in the modern world, that we live in a fall? And then he ends with that last, um, the last stanza of section four, the dripping blood our only drink, the bloody flesh our only food, in spite of which we like to think that we are sound, substantial <coughs> flesh and blood. Again, in spite of that, we call this Friday good. The only help for us is the Eucharist. It's where we take Christ into us. And, um, presumably, if Eliot's right here, I think he is, it's because we know that we're not sound. <laughs> it, I've said this before. It, it, if, if we ever reach that point where we think we're okay, we're in trouble. Really in trouble. Because it seems to me we do the, the most stupid things in our arrogance when we think we're okay. Um, 
if we carry our sins with us, I take it as a sign of health. That's where he is right here. Okay. Section five. <clears throat> so here I am in the middle way. Remember how much that echoes Dante? The Divine Comedy. In the middle of my life, Eliot knows where he is. I mean, he's, he's expecting us to pick up Dante here, carry Dante with us to have him on our mind. So here I am in the middle way, having had 20 years, 20 years <coughs> largely wasted, the years of l'entre-deux-guerres, trying to learn to use words, and every attempt is wholly new start and a different kind of failure. Because one has only learned to get the better of words for the thing one no longer has to say, or the way in which one is no longer disposed to say it. And so each venture is a new beginning. Here's that cyclical thing, except he's introduced a new note. So each venture is a new beginning, arrayed on the inarticulate with shabby equipment always deteriorating in the general mess of imprecision of feeling. Undisciplined squads of emotion and what there is to conquer by strength and submission has already been discovered once or twice or several times by men whom one cannot hope to emulate. But there is no competition. There is only the fight to recover what has been lost and found and lost again and again and now under conditions that seem unpropitious. There's that cyclical thing again. Find it, lose it, find it. But perhaps neither gain nor loss for us. There is only the trying. The rest is not our business. Home is where one starts from. As we grow older, the world becomes stranger, the patterns more complicated of dead and living. Not the intense moment isolated with no before and after, but a lifetime burning in every moment and not the lifetime of one man only, but of old stones that cannot be deciphered. There is a time for the evening under starlight, a time for the evening under lamplight, the evening with the photograph album. Love is most nearly itself when here and now cease to matter. Old men ought to be explorers. Here and there does not matter. We must be still and still moving into another intensity for a further union, a deeper communion, through the dark cold and the empty desolation, the wave cry, the wind cry, the vast waters of the petrel and the porpoise, in my end is my beginning. Remember, um, Katie, you, wouldn't, you weren't here, but you have to read it. But remember, it opened with, in my beginning is my end, remember? And in succession, things fall, in my beginning is my end. He's, he's turned it around. And remember, I, I told you that those were the words spoken by Mary Queen of Scots when she went to her death. Um, in my end is my beginning. That's how this ends. Remember, it began to start the cyclical way of thinking and motion. In my beginning is my end. My end is already applied here. There's, there's only one end for all of us. We're going to die. What happens after that <laughs> is not a small question. But he begins, in my beginning is my end. And then he ends, in my end is my beginning, because at least anybody holding a faith knows that um, after the end of things is really the, the true beginning of things. Um, because that's our final end. That's what we were meant for. That's why God made us. So, 
Okay, next week we'll start dry savages. Okay, so um, I think you all have copies, right? Of oh, no. I think so. We're gonna start what? Dry savages, the next quartet. Listen, let's do this for those. Um, we'll bring some copies next week for those of you who don't. Go online because you can get it online and just read yeah. it. But we will make copies and have them available in the office this week. So we'll make some copies available. Here, can I get your attention? We'll, we'll put some copies in the office, but we'll also put some copies at the end of the hallway, before you make the left turn to go down the hallway to the door, just before you make the left turn, there's a set of, there's the um, staff room. Just before that, there are all those mailboxes. Suzanne put a sign at the bottom for our class to leave materials there. So if you come on the weekend when the office isn't open, you can still pick up things there. And we'll put copies of dry salvages and uh, Little Gidding, the last quartet, out for those of you who don't have it. Okay? Let's start. <coughs> quick, quick review of the Hamlet. Remember, the Hamlet began with um, the story of. Ab Snopes um, representing this male love of power and honor. Um, and he was taken up, obsessed with horse trading. He, he, in modern terms, he reminds me of a young kid and a young teach, teenager growing up and wanting to buy a souped up car and go drag racing and show that his, his car is more stylish than another and then do the dragging on the street. I laugh at that stuff and I don't think it exists anymore, but if you all pay any attention to the movies, you know that that whole long series of movies came out with um, whatever those, act, act, act. The, Fast and the, the Fast and the Furious and I mean, what were there, six or seven of them? Yeah. They, they would not have that many if they weren't that popular. So there's got, that culture still got to be alive, even if I don't see it around us, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, young kids grow up, their fathers take a car into the garage and fix it up and soup it up so that it's more powerful, and then you get out on the street and you drive down the, the street and then keep your foot on the clutch and then keep gassing it so it sounds like it's you know, ready to explode and then take off and, and drive up to a stop sign and, and then some other car drive up alongside of you and the two of you, that sort of culture. It, I'm saying that because I, this shouldn't be strange. The Hamlet begins with Ab Snopes, aware that he's been bested by Pat Stamper before and wants to beat him to recover his pride. It's his sense of male honor. And, and then he gets bested again. You know the story, I'm not gonna go through it. Um, and Jody, who is Varner's son, attempts to do the same thing with Ab. Ab comes to him and wants to rent a farm, and he sees it as an opportunity for taking advantage of him. And, and you know what happens. Um, Ab gets the better of him, and Flem is waiting outside the house when he comes to visit him, comes out from behind the tree, and, um, and 
so manipulates Jody that he's in the store the next day taking Jody's place. And that's only the beginning of the rise of Snopesism because you know what happens then. Flem takes over the granary. Um, I.O. comes in and takes over the, the blacksmith shop. He goes on to be the school teacher. And that's just the beginning of things. And we're watching this agrarian culture look on passively while it all happens. Um, so what we're watching, and, and remember, in one sense, I think, we're, if we have any sense of history, we've got to be aware that somehow this is related to the defeat in the Civil War, that the South lost its way, that it, 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 had, it had to radically change a culture, a way that had been into a, in effect for cultures. It was a slave plantation culture. They were defeated. The, the northern carpetbaggers come in, the people from the north. Remember the, uh, what's it called, the monkey trial? With what's Clarence Darrow and? Scopes. The Scopes trial? Yeah. Isn't that funny? I wonder if. I, I, Scopes and Snopes, yeah. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder if that's a play on that. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but the North comes in and it starts dictating the forms of education, a whole Northern industrial banking culture. That's what we saw in Sound of the Fury. It comes, comes in. And this new class that we saw from Santa the Fury, this uprooted class, this class that has no affiliations, no connections with anything, there's no sense of a we, no sense of a culture, gets turned loose and starts taking over. I think Flem belongs to that class because he has no, no sense of loyalty to anything. There's no sense of a past that connects him, nothing he would die for. It's like a principle set loose that in this American culture given to greed and getting ahead, he's the image of it. There's nothing that he does in affection or love or honor. He uses everybody. And, and we watch a community begin to be aware that something's happening even though they're not doing anything about it yet. You know that Ratliff is the one who tries to do something and you know what happens at the end. <laughs> Flem takes him. That's how, the, that's how the Hamlet ends. It's funny, Mary was saying a few minutes ago how much she was upset at the ending. There was one of the parishioners in the Friday morning class who was really angry. I mean, she was openly, she said she got so angry at the book. I, I had the feeling she threw it down. She just slammed it down and picked up the town. She was so disgusted she didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. Um, um, my response to her was, don't be too hard, because I think that was an important learning experience for Ratliff. I really believe that. Ratliff's going to be a better person in the town because he got really taken badly. And, and it's got to mean more for him because you know he's so much more serious about it. Remember, he's the one who went to that peep show that I had with um, Ike and the Cow and nailed up the board because he did not want those people doing such a, you know, an openly disgusting thing. So he's a good man, but the Hamlet ends with him absolutely taken. And now, yeah, well, or honor, proud, you know, yeah. I mean, like I said, afterwards I thought, well, he didn't try to go after Ratliff. In no way did he try to go after right. him. He wasn't retribution right. or anything. It was just, he was going to catch somebody. Right, right. But I think, and, you know, 
in the sense that Ratliff wanted to best him, I mean, I don't know how much of it's greed, that he, he steps into that honor code. Remember, he tries to do the thing with the goats and almost gets him. That he, he sees Flem as evil. Remember, he has that vision of Flem in hell. He, kn he knows that he's dealing with evil, and he, and he wants to stop it. So there's something good in him. It's not, I don't think it's just greed. But, but he's, uh, he's flawed, too. Yeah, right. He, yeah. He, he was in, I agree, he was in it for the money. I think right. that that over took him. Right. <coughs> right, but in no way was, you know, Flem was out to get. Yeah, well, Flem's out to get. Whoever he's yeah, right. Yeah. So, um, and we, we see this acquisitive spirit playing out everywhere. With Houston and Mink, the issue is a dollar pound fee. And Mink's going to kill Houston over that. Because the pride, well, I mean, I, it, you know, it happened. The pride of these men is so great. I mean, men had duels over matters of pride. Um, over a, a pound fee, Lump wants to recover Houston's body after Mink buries it because he's convinced there's $50 in his pocket. So we're watching a community, particularly in the Snopes, become more and more acquisitive, acquisitive, wanting more. And set off against this acquisitive culture are the sexual relationships between men and women. And I don't want to go into that. We've already covered this, but just briefly. Um, one of the interesting things that we see is two that are really important. One is the loss of the chivalric code in the South. And that's not a small thing. The North was never, was never chivalric in that way. The South was. The models for the Southern culture was England and the ancient world, the classics, and, and the Middle Ages. So the, the chivalric code was very much a part of the Southern culture. Men grew up to be gentlemen. That was very English. That's not Northern. And you know how important that is because when we did Sound on the Fury, you saw how important that it was for Gavin. It's gone. He, or not Gavin, um, Caddy's brother. Uh, Chase, uh, Quentin. Quentin, thanks. Quentin took his life. I mean, he could not live up to that honor code. He was embarrassed by, in all the fights he got into with men over a matter of honor, he, he just feels himself a failure everywhere. And he carried that in, into his life because they'd lost the Civil War. So that sense of chivalry of being this great culture was disappearing. His father became alcoholic. His father was a hero in the war. When, when your father was a hero in the war, but you lost the war, what do you bring home as a man? And we saw that again and again and again and again. So in Sound of the Fury, we were aware of the chivalric element in the South disappearing. Um, here, to me, it's, to me it's, I think it's one of the most extraordinary things Faulkner did. He shows us that honor code in a parody in Ike and the Cow, in everything that Ike does with a cow. Because on the surface of it, it looks so stupid, it's immoral. But Ike's not doing anything immoral. He doesn't, he's an idiot. He doesn't, he doesn't know any better. But we're watching a, a human being perform all the ritual acts of courtship with a cow. Remember the wooing, the chasing, when she runs away to go get her, to feed her, to decorate her, to rescue her from the fire? We can laugh at all of that. 
But in, and and I, you know, I told you how amazed, I, the first time I read it, how stunned I was by the beginning, because when you first read those lines, you think it's a lover waiting for the beloved. And two pages later, you suddenly realize it's a cow. <laughs> and Wagner knew exactly what he was doing. Um, and it gives us a glimpse into what's missing. There's not a note of that anywhere in any, in any of the marriages, none of them. Marriages have become conventional. They're marriages of convenience or respectability. There's nothing close to what we would think about as the sacramental nature of a marriage. The, the, the cross, the suffering, any of that. Um, and also the second thing to, it seems to me one of the more important things to take away from the Hamlet is the women are unfailingly faithful. Um, Houston's wife, remember, she does everything she can to help him graduate and he does everything he can to run away from her. And, um, and when Minx um, kills Houston and he flees and he comes back to meet her, she's furious. She, I mean, I, I, I read that scene before we left. She's screaming at him. I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. I wish I, I wish I could be the man, I wish I could be the one to hang you, bring you back to life again and hang you again, bring you back to life. And I mean, it's, it's, it, to me it's wonderful because what she's saying is I love you. <laughs> um, she's so furious they didn't get away. And then she stays loyal to him when he gets put in jail. And, and once again, Ratliff steps forward, he's the only one, none of the Snopes step forward to take care of her. He's the only one to look out for her freely on her own. So in the Hamlet, we're watching an agrarian culture slowly get taken over. And that's where we left off. Um, it ends, remember, with, with Flem pulling the scam. Um, and interesting, Armstead is the one who brings Ratliff into it, describes it to him, and then they come looking for the treasure, and, um, and they all get duped. Um, it begins with Varner, you know, on the um, Frenchman Ben Mansion, the house, and the narrator describing um, Varner is, is that was the one decision that he regretted in all of his life because it was useless. It was a worthless piece of property. Armstead, to me, did one of the most violently stupid things in the novel when he paid that five dollars to that Texan because his wife had worked so hard for it. Ratliff goes into this deal with Armstead. And now Armstead and Ratliff and Bookwright have Frenchman Ben. And it's a useless piece of thing. And to, to, to make, to put it, Ratliff in a darker light, and you know how much I admire him. I, I, I do, I really, I, I can't, you'll, I think you'll love him more, in the, but I, I so admire that man, he's such a good person. He's implicated in what he stuck with, with Armstead, because Armstead's one of the owners in Frenchman's Ben. So what are they gonna do? It's a dark, dark ending. Did that go off? It's a dark, dark ending. So here we are, here we are in the beginning of the town. So in the town, we've moved from this Arcadian pastoral world, it's a country village setting, into a town. And it's really interesting if you think about it because when we were in the Arcadian world, it was as if it was highlighted a little bit with um, mythic elements. And I'm using that word deliberately, mythic 
um, almost mystical. Remember there's that description of Eul of Armour, the, the Olympian ejaculation, that it wombed this extraordinarily beautiful sexual woman. Ratliff has that vision of hell. In the spotted horse scene, when they're describing the horses, there are some of the scenes that describe them almost phantom-like. And that one horse keeps mystically jumping over ex-son. Remember, he never injures him. Um, all these strange things happen as if, as if somebody's watching out for somebody. What, so, go ahead. What do you actually mean, though, I mean, by Arcadian? I mean, there, I mean, it seems like, you know, I mean, from my knowledge of the Arcadian community that was, I guess, established up in Canada, I mean, is this, is this reference to that and their behavior and, and the way they, way they conduct it? You've been with her too long now. Bob. You think so? Yes. <laughs> he says I'm the class troublemaker. <laughs> Continue. Let me answer that just brief. Arcadia is a mythic place in it's literature. Okay. So it's mythic in this case. And it's supposed to be a, in the in terms of the literary tradition, it's supposed to be okay. this place of beauty and wonder and yeah. wholeness and yeah. and. Most of us have this, and we've talked about this, most of us has this longing for this Arcadian world. We can call it this Edenic world in suburbia. Mm -hmm. We want to retreat to a world where everything is beautiful and nice and we don't have to deal with evil. And, um, and before Flem enters this culture, we can say that most of these people are just very much at home. Remember the description of Varner's store is people come in, they put in their money and leave, and there's this trust, there's no sense of violence or um, betrayals or abuse or people just seem to get along. It's a, it's a country setting. Um, people know each other, they're at home with each other, and then Flem enters this world and it changes. So we, we, we moved from what was an Arcadian world that he entered and began to change, and we're moving into a, a world of respectability. Thanks for, Thanks for asking that. Of city blocks, town limits, by the way, just to, to make the connection, those of you who did Go Down Moses, remember Go Down Mo you remember Gavin Stevens from Go Down Moses? He's the, he's the lawyer that helped Molly at the very end. So we have in Gavin Stevens already an image of still of a surviving spirit of chivalry. We saw that in Go Down Moses. And remember, when it ended, he, he and the, the editor went as far as the city limits and went back, yes. we talked about that. Why? Because he wanted to get back to his desk. Because he's a man of structures. And remember when he went up to, to talk with Molly and they're all singing that threnody, go down Moses, go down Moses. Um, Pharaoh sold my son, sold my, remember the singing? Gavin's over, overwhelmed. He does everything he can to get out of there because it's too much emotion for him. He can't, he can't stand it. So he's very much a man of the law, very much a man of the city. So we've, we've moved from this agrarian, pastoral world into a town setting. And, and um, all, the, all the events show the meaning of that. Um, we've got three men, two men and a young boy talking to each other about Snopes. And at the center of everything that goes on is the Mallison family with Maggie, Gavin's sister, and her husband. And all that goes on in a family is they're trying to 
get along in the world, um, they're going to have a child halfway through the story. So we've entered a, a different world. Um, Mary, can I ask, can you close that? Sure. Thanks. So um, there's three things I want to touch on here before I look at some passages. One is um, what, be, what began seemingly innocently in the Hamlet with Phlegm beginning to take over now takes on a seriousness far beyond anything we saw. And I hope that's clear. In an agrarian world, it's, what he did was still relatively innocent. In the town, he's going to become plant super, superintendent. He's going to become vice president of the bank. He will become the president of the bank. And in the mansion, he will have a mansion. So Flem Snopes is an image of the entrepreneur in America, the, the man who wants to get ahead. And it doesn't matter what he does to get ahead. He will do whatever he has to do. So Flem's on the rise. And um, as in the Hamlet, no sooner does he vacate a place than one of his family members takes it over. So they begin to multiply. They're described in terms of rats um, and mice taking over a town. Set off against this action involving phlegm, this call it the phlegm plot, is um, what I would call the, the plot of romantic love, or, or probably more accurately, the, um, the, the plot having to do with passions and desires that are set loose um, because of what happens when phlegm enters the town. I don't think that's small at all. Because the greater part of the town is going to get taken up with Gavin wanting to save Linda, I mean uh, Eula, remember? And then after everything um, happens involving him to Spain, his going off to war and then coming back, his wanting to save Eula's daughter, Linda. Um, and I want to come back to that because it, I think it's a, it's a, it's a huge thing. Um, Cleanth Brooks, who's probably, in, in some ways, one of the best critics on Faulkner, he wrote a book um, on, that, he, that includes a chapter on every one of Faulkner's major novels. Southerner, he taught at Princeton, um, just one of the um, most outstanding of the modern scholars in literature. In his chapter on the town, he, he, he sees um, romantic love as being at the center of the novel. I, I, I think he's a little bit mistaken. I think, he, I think he's a little bit off focus, but, but he puts forward the argument using another critic, a man named um, um, Denise Rougemont, um, who argues that one of the defining qualities of Western civilization since the 12th century has been romantic love. And according to that notion of romantic love, there can be no happiness in love in this world. The very nature of love is passionate and dark. And he will go through um, all of the literature from about the 12th century forward to, to illustrate his point. 
I don't agree with him, but I think it's a point worth um, it's it's a it's a it's a point worth putting out, and and certainly one for you guys, all of us, to think about. And let me just say it briefly. If you know anything about history, you know that the Albigenian Crusade and and the Cathars who came out of it were um, um, a Christian people, a Catholic people, who believed that who came to believe that the body was evil and spirit good, very Manichaean. If you know Man Manichaeism, you know that according to the Manichaeans, everything having to do with the body is evil, and everything having to do with the spirit is good. They look at the Old Testament as looking back to an evil way of life, and the New Testament is a good way of life. It's a form of Gnosticism. The body's bad. The body's not a good thing. Um, or is it so bad? Just, um, if you look at all of the Arthurian romances, or most of the literature, literature in the Christian Middle Ages, you'll see that um, courtly love, usually in King Arthur is probably the best example, courtly love involves a form of adultery, that marriage becomes a settled way of life and, and out for the, for the courtly romance to continue itself, it has to involve a relationship outside of marriage, a passionate erotic relationship because marriage by its very nature does away with eros, with passion, it becomes conventional. Or, so if you look, Lancelot and Guinevere with King Arthur is probably the best example. Dante treats that theme everywhere through the Divine Comedy. You remember, if you, if you remember, those of you who did the Divine Comedy, remember the, the very first level into hell um, was lust. And if you remember, the, the couple that exemplified lust was Francesco and Paola they, they had committed adultery and were killed in the act of adultery and went to hell. And remember her response in the Inferno was to blame God. So even Dante's aware of it. And there's not an author in the modern world who wouldn't be aware of this. Um, I think, well here, let me read this. There's something to be said for that way of looking at, at Gavin, but um, I think in some ways it misses something, and I want to see if I can make this clear. Look, um, hold on one second. So there is this belief. I believe. I believe it's very much part of the Protestant mindset, because if you if you look at the Protestant mindset um, as it as it's um, articulated with Luther and Calvin, the body is depraved. The body's not good. So anything having to do with the body is looked down on. It's a bad thing. So there's a Manichaean element present in the, in the Protestant mind. If that isn't clear, think about this. Calvin said the body was depraved. Luther looked down on it. Um, they don't have the sacrament. So for neither, or Luther does, but in an incomplete way, but Calvin doesn't. If you have a sacrament, as a Catholic does, you believe that when you take the wafer, you're taking the actual body and blood of Christ in a physical thing. Because our belief is that Christ entered matter, became fully human. He carried his divine nature in it. So he is fully human and divine. When he entered the waters of baptism, that's the, the, the day we celebrate in the Mass today, he made holy the waters. So that when baptism was performed after that, 
a human being was made holy. That's what baptism is. To put this differently, when Christ took on our human nature, he made everything in the natural world sacred. Set that against Calvin. Nature's corrupt. Nature's depraved. I hope that's clear. So there's an element, there's an element of that Manichaean spirit carried forward in our notions about romantic love. The body's not good, that sex, that sex is dirty. Put it that way. But it's a dirty thing. According to the Catholic, it, it can be it can be bad if it's illicit or unlawful, but in itself it can be holy, it can become sacramental. That's the whole push of the church. And I'm, I'm assuming everybody knows how hard that is to live and how difficult it is in the modern times and how many Catholics are aware of it. I mean, look, look, there's nothing in the world that supports that way of looking at sex at all. And we grew up, we grew up in this world. I mean, it's our world, so we're back in Plato's cave, except with a focus on sex, if you can look at it that way. Um, Um, Father um, Darcy, a Catholic priest who is a very important literary critic in our time, points out that Gnosticism seems to have been one of those unfortunate forms of thought for which human beings have a chronic appetite. The modern world tends to be Gnostic. I, I don't know if that's obvious to anybody, but it, it is to me because it's been on my mind. Think about the number of ways that we live outside of our body. We get on a computer, we look at an image, there's no body there. We get on a phone, we hear a voice, there's no body there. Think about all the forms of, of communication today that allow some form of communication to go without the body being present. Pornography is a good example. Um, I mean, we could go on and on. I'm not, I think I'm missing something here. Texting, you know, computer messaging, all of those things, that we have taken the body out of everything. Um, how, and what that's, I mean, stop and think about it. what's the effect of that over time when you grow up in a culture that way? The technology, one of the effects of technology is that. So, um, he, Darcy's acknowledging that and he says, yet Father Darcy goes on to say that there's no reason to reject de Rougemont's main thesis even though it be an oversimplification and pressed too far as an explanation of the history of European civilization. So enough if we accept his view, this romance did contain a special doctrine of love. When Provencal romance united with Celtic myths and dreams, the characteristic traits of that doctrine become unmistakable Love is a rapture, a divine transport. It desires union with the infinite, and from that union there is no return. Because it longs for the union with, an inf with the infinite, it, what Rougemont says is, is it secretly harbors a death wish. The death gets intimately connected with sex as it's passed down to us. So um, one of the ways in which critics look at Gavin is in, in these terms that he carries something of this way of looking at women with him. 
And the reason this is important is because you know that when Eula comes to him to offer her her body after the dance, Gavin not only rejects her, but um, insults her. I mean, it's a scathing scene. I'm going to look at it in a minute. I want to put this differently with Shakespeare. Can you just take a look at this Shakespeare poem? We read this before. Um, for those of you who are here with Dante, um, hold on to this for a moment because I think it's a, it's a good... This is certainly a Catholic... This is Orthodox Catholicism. If you've read the Divine Comedy, you know that Dante was on his way to being damned. We find that out, I think, halfway at Purgatory or into the Paradiso, I can't remember, but he's on his way to being damned. Um, and Beatrice comes to meet him. She's the woman that Dante loved when he first saw her, and she wasn't his wife. This is courtly romance again. She was Dante married elsewhere, but he continued to love Beatrice in probably a way he didn't love his wife because Beatrice was an image of the Trinity. He saw in her an image of God. So it's fitting that she's the one to lead him of the last part of the Commedia. Um, but what we have with Dante is a, an exploration of romantic love from the perspective of a Catholic. And by that I mean this. Um, look at Shakespeare's sonnet because it'll bring it home. Shakespeare's sonnet 130. Remember, we went through this. The Petrarchan sonnet tended to idealize women. It put women on a pedestal. Petrarch painted these pictures of these beautiful women and then he wept because all of his emotion, he could never love her enough or, go, or endure enough suffering to show his love for her. And so his passions were always put in terms of these wild metaphors and tempests and storms. And Shakespeare knows that, he's aware of it. And he writes this sonnet. My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow in her head. I have seen roses damasked red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. This is lauding a woman, I mean, praising her for her beauty. She's got hair like wires, her breath smells. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go, this is all against Petrarch. He is critiquing that whole Petrarchan tradition. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet by heaven, I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. Let me try to put this into perspective. Halfway up the purgatory, you remember that Dante and Virgil come to the level of lust and remember he sees the siren he looks at her and she starts to sing and the more she sings the more he becomes entranced with her until Lucia has to come to get Virgil who has to wake Dante up Lucia's illumination divine grace um, it's, it's an image of idolatry that the tendency of the human soul in its desires is to make something of the woman, the beloved, more than she is. We idolize. I mean, we, we all know that. I mean, from our young years, we grow up and we fall head over heels in love with somebody and terribly idealize them. That's, that's an, um, 
an illustration of the way our pride and our excessive desires get in the way so that we make more of something that's really there. I think all of us know that. Um, so there's two things to hold on here. One is the tendency in idolatry that we, because we desire something so much, we make more of it than it really deserves. That's part of what's being corrected in the Divine Comedy. Um, to not idolatrize and yet never forget, at least according to our faith, that every one of us is made in the image of Christ. Every, the Christianity, the Imago Christiani, in every human being. So what we're called on is to love the, the, the image of Christ in each other um, and not idealize that person. And love that person knowing that we're in a fall. So we're all called to become virtuous, to take seriously, becoming, to doing justice to the image of Christ we all have. We're supposed to struggle to be virtuous, to be that image that we all carry. We're asked to love each other, that image in each other, um, and not idealize, to know that we're in a fall, that we all carry the sin, so that our struggle is to help each other become better, to love the way Christ is. So my sense of Gavin is very different from the critics. My own sense of Gavin is that he, he carries within him this noble ideal of a, of a chivalric knight, that he does not like to see a woman mistreated the way you is because um, phlegm is really hiring her out. Um, he, he knows, he knows that, um, that he, can, he, can, he can use her to his advantage. He can get to Spain to open up this position and superintendent and it will only be the beginning of things, that that's a card he plays. So um, Ravin, Gavin does not want to see that happen. There's something in him trying to be protective of her as a woman, her goodness. And um, so it, it takes the form of something chivalric. It's rare. Nobody else does it in the town. When she comes to offer herself, I don't think it's because he's got this death wish. I mean, some critics read it that way. I think it's because he's trying to be good. You know, that, that this chivalric side of him is, is real because one of the easiest... There's not a man in that town that doesn't want to sleep with Eula. I mean, they can't stop gawking at her. Gavin doesn't want that to happen. So what we're watching in the town is Flem entering this town and, be, and beginning to in, infect it, to infuse into this culture something that's an anti-culture. But in the process, all these other things are set off. The adultery with the Spain, the fights that take place after the ball. It's almost as if because of what happens with Phlegm and the Eros that's set off in response to it, that Eros is set off everywhere. Remember the young couple that not only did Gavin and Despain go out in the alley and fight, but the other man who loved Lucy, I uh, can't remember, Lucy Pearl, I can't remember her name, but he sent her a corsage and her husband, because Lucy was his flame in high school, after the ball, they went out and fought, and, and the next day the husband went home and gave Lucy a black eye, and she goes into town showing it off, because her husband at least loves her enough to give her a black eye. And we know a year later what happens, the Mallisons have Chuck. And if you watch it, it's really funny, because everything about the Mallisons is very, very proper. 
I'm going to read a, some chapters. I want to get to the reading here in a minute. But very, very proper. You don't have any sense of passion at all. In fact, the wife, Maggie says, the less, when the husband makes it clear that he has never looked at Eula, Maggie has those lines. We, she says, so much for the worst for me. You, she calls him a dead fish. Um, but something happens because a year later they have chick. So what we're watching is some undercurrent of love, eros, is set in motion while this rise is going on. And I don't think we can separate them. Wagner doesn't. Something's going on. So we're watching a town begin to grow up, to begin to take responsibility for evil, and something else is set into it, some kind of passion um, that hasn't had a home before, and strange things are happening. That's one. The second thing to keep in mind is the narrative form, and I want to... Um, you all know that there are three... There are three narrators who are talking to each other. There's Gavin and Ratliff and Chick, and we know that everything that Chick got is from Gowan. So the narrative structure takes the form of these men beginning to talk to each other. It's so different from the Hamlet. It, I, it's extraordinary because in itself it's an example of people coming together. It, it gives the town a richness I think that's greater than the Hamlet because everybody's not only, these three figures are not only struggling with Snopes, they're struggling with each other. If, you, if you've read closely, you know Gavin overthinks everything. He's in his head with poets and thought, and Ratliff is, um, he gets angry at La Ratliff, tells him to get out of his office because he says Ratliff is too damn shrewd, too damn smart. <coughs> Ratliff is more down to earth. He sees things that other people don't see. And Chick is a boy. He's just learning, and he's learning from another boy, Gowan, who's, what, what 14 years older than he is, something like that. So we're watching a community begin to pull together. And it's exemplified, illustrated beautifully, I think, in the form of the novel. Let me stop there, because I want to just, I want to I go over, I want to read some passages with you. But any questions about any of this? One of the, one of, for what it's worth, I know this is going to seem strange to you, but when I read the Iliad, I, for those of you who did it, I read it almost as, a, as an example of the way in which the Holy Spirit is present on a battlefield. We think of God not being present in a war because it's awful of violence, but he, he, he's got to be present there. When you read the Iliad, you're aware of all these gods interacting with men. They're, all, they're present everywhere. And the modern scholar blows that off and says, these gods don't exist, so they just don't read the Iliad anymore. It's not the Holy Spirit as we know it. It's these all the Zeus, Apollo, Athena, and all the Homeric gods. But the gods are there everywhere in one form or another, doing one thing or another. Nothing goes on that doesn't involve the gods. And it's a rich, rich book. When I read the town, I have that same feeling that you, it's impossible to look at anybody in this book and not feel they're carrying the whole town within them. Everything that's going on, that didn't happen in the Hamlet. Maggie is worried about her brother. She's, I mean, the, that dinner conversation, she'll, she'll say, do you want me to call her? She's going to call Eula. She carries her brother with him. 
And after the fight, after Gavin gets beat up, she sends him the flower, because she, she knows Eula won't do it. She sends him the flower and says, she sent it to you. Eula didn't send it, it was her. And she says, almost crying, you're too good for them, you're too good for them. Ratliff carries Chick, Gavin, you know the other characters. Every one of these characters is carrying other people with them. They're part of their burdens. So everything they say has a richness far greater than anything we saw in the Hamlet. We're watching a community begin to come together. It reminds me of the body of Christ, the mystical body of Christ. That the people are somehow beginning to carry each other and it gives a richness to what they do that's, I think it's rare in modern literature. I think it's an amazing book. Anyway, any, any questions about this basic stuff? I want to read some passages, but... No? Not yet. Not yet? Not yet. Okay, let's, let's read. She's saving her zinger for a while. I know, I know, I know. I forgot my armor tonight. She's got one, Bob. I'm knocking on grace. Okay, let's go to the beginning. I, just a couple of things to, to sort of get us in here. Turn to page three, very, very opening. There's, there's a couple of questions. Let me ask them now, looking ahead, so you can keep these on your mind. I want to leave a few minutes to see what your response is. Why did Faulkner use this narrative structure? Two men and a boy learning from another boy who's 14 years older than he is. 13, 14 years older. Why did Faulkner, why is Faulkner doing that, number one? How do we look at that meeting between, Ga, um, Rat, Ga, sorry, between Gavin and Eula when she comes after the ball to offer herself sexually and he refuses? How are we to understand him? Because as I said earlier, people read him in, in different ways and um, is God present? And I know that's a stretch right now because there's nothing explicitly religious about this book at all, but is he present anyway? Just keep those on your mind. Um, I want to read some passages that will get us there. Turn to the beginning. It begins chapter one. This is Chick. I wasn't born yet, so here, I mean, what, what is Faulkner doing? We're getting an, a, a narrative from a kid who goes back to a time when he wasn't born yet. Hold off, but I keep that question because I want to come back to it because to me that's not small. I wasn't born yet, so it was cousin Gowan who was there and big enough to see and remember and tell me afterwards when I was big enough for it to make sense. That is, it was cousin Gowan plus Uncle Gavin, or maybe Uncle Gavin, rather plus cousin Gowan. He, cousin Gowan, was 13. His grandfather was grandfather's brother, so by the time it got down to us, he and I didn't know what cousin to each other we were. So he just called all of us except grandfather cousin, and all of us except grandfather called him cousin and let it go at that. God, that's so real. On page five. Chick is introducing us. The first two chapters, Faulkner is 
going back and picking up the Hamlet, you know, he goes back and um, Ratliff is explaining to Gavin what happened, and Gavin says, salted mine, oldest trick in the book that, that Flem pulled it over on him and sort of rubbing it in, I think, in Ratliff. And Ratliff, I think, is over it by that time. But, but a good part of the first couple of chapters are retrospect. We're going back and picking things up as we move forward. But here, Chick is still setting out the role that he plays in this. And he says in the bottom of four, he and Ratliff talked together a lot because although Ratliff had never been to school anywhere much and spent his time traveling about our country telling, selling sewing machines or selling or swapping or trading something else for that matter, he and Uncle Gavin were both interested in people, or so Uncle Gavin said, because what I always thought they were mainly interested in was curiosity. What does that tell us about Chick? very perceptive for a young boy. Very perceptive, and maybe not very perceptive at all. I mean, he clearly sees a lot, but I, I wonder if he isn't saying too, he doesn't understand all this stuff. He's too young. What he's seeing on the surface is too men curious. They keep talking about it. He doesn't have the depth of mind yet to carry it all. So I think it's just a way of reminding us that this is a young kid who's taking everything very seriously, but he still can't see things the way the older men do. Because they're going to, I mean clearly, they're going to see things at a depth that he doesn't have. Until this time, that is, until this time, that is, because this time it had already gone a good deal farther than just curiosity, this time it was alarm. So here at the outset, we're being introduced to a situation through the narrators where they're talking to each other, they're learning to talk to each other, but they're also beginning to deal with a problem in a way that people have not done before. Um, going over to um, page 15, The topic of the adultery, the, the affair between Despain and Eula's come up, middle of the page. On the contrary, we were on his side, this Despain, I think. We didn't want to know. We were his allies, his confederates. Our whole town was accessory to that cuckolding. That cuckolding, which for any proof we had, we had invented ourselves out of whole cloth. That same cuckoldry in which we would watch Despain and Snopes walking amicably together while, though we didn't know it yet, the Spain was creating, planning how to create that office of power plant superintendent, which we didn't even know we didn't have, let alone needed, and then get Mr. Snopes into it. It was not because we were against Mr. Snopes. We had not yet read the signs in the portents. Remember, those? there's those images of, um, I love the image. The first image they have of, of Snopes in the, in the plant as superintendent was of a, of a of a, what's a, not a, the foot pit, a monument, yes. was like a testimony to his greatness. Right. And they, they, they said they misread it. It was really a footstep. What's the difference there? Why does he change it from a monument to a footstep? It's higher than the monument. 
going oh, higher. The higher. monument is permanent, as I think he yeah. points out. And the footstep is He's the one or step footprint. Is just something yeah, is because they've got to follow him. A footstep is a track. Yeah. Yes. Right. Because they know they're, they're always trying to keep abreast of him, mm -hmm. and what they keep discovering is he's always one step ahead of them. They're always mm -hmm. going up. Yep. Um, but here it's interesting that there's a sense of complicity. Now think, I, I think about the abortion, you know, or take anything that is contrary to Catholic teaching in the modern the last 20, 30 years. How quick are, are Catholics to respond to something and get on it? I mean, I would say historically not quick at all. You know, I mean, 20 years after abortion or whatever it is, I mean, finally there's a pro-life movement and it takes a while of people talking together and being serious enough about watch what's going on to try to gather it. It's like, it's like there's some trusted sense that things will be okay so you don't act right away. And what we've got here is a town who's watching everything happen except Gavin and Ratliff are not. They're aware that they've, they've got to do something. So we're watching at least the, the few of them struggling now to understand what they've got to do. Um, but at this point, there's a sense of complicity. Um, they haven't quite gotten to that point yet. Um, turn to page 27. You all know the scam. Snopes um, sees that there's brass in the power plant and he knows that it's that he can sell it and make money on it. God. So he takes it, even though it puts the power plant in jeopardy because the men almost blow themselves up. I mean, he doesn't care about the human lives of other people. He just cares about getting ahead. And then he sets Tom, Tom, and Tommy's Turl against each other. He asks Tom, Tom to go sell the or hide the brass because they get audited, and so he wants to cover his tracks. And then threatens Tom, Tom with his job if he if he doesn't find it after he's hid it. So. Um, he sends him out one night, or, or, or actually taught, he sends Turl out to find it. And he didn't know that Turl has been, I don't know what you call him, a lover's guy. I mean, he's a man's woman. He's in and out of bedrooms, I guess, in the whole community. And um, Tom Tom has just recently married, apparently, a be a, this beautiful woman. And Tommy Turl has been sneaking into the house instead of looking for the brass and having it he's having an affair with her while Tom Tom's working at the plant except for this one night when Snopes has warned them and Tom Tom has found out I guess he's figured it out himself I'm not quite sure how he knows but that night he leaves work instead of staying there to, to greet um, Turl when he comes and Harker who's one of the plant workers is there to watch it so he watches um, Turl sneak in the window and then things blow up on page 27. Turl walks into the house thinking he's going to make love with this man's wife again, how long this has been going on. A honey bunch, lay calm, Papa's done arrived. And Gowan said how even 24 hours afterwards he took for the incident of Turl's horrid surprise who believed that at that moment Tom Tom was two miles away at the power plant waiting for him, Turl, to appear and relieve him of the cold scoop. Tom Tom lying fully dressed beneath a quilt with a naked butcher knife in his hand when Turl flung it back. Just exactly time enough, Mr. Harker said. Just exactly on time as a two-inch... Now, the, 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 I want to get to the description because this is hilarious. 
Turl jumping out of the house into the moonlight, again with Tom Tom and the butcher's knife riding on his back, so that they look just like, what do you call them double joint half horse fellers in the old picture book? Centaur, Gowan said, looking just like a centaur running on its hind legs and trying to catch up with itself. So we've got this image of Tom Tom on Turl's back with a butcher knife silhouetted against the, the moon, you know, trying to kill him. Tom Tom is 250 pounds, <laughs> and, and, and Turl is a little small. Right, and, and frightened enough to run. This is what you call local color. I mean, Faulkner had to grow up hearing black people describe things like this with the hilarious exaggeration. You know, I, I, I'm so sad with political correctness because lots of people would be offended at this sort of stuff. And it's so real and so authentic and so funny. Anyway, the last description is that they're running so fast that they, they run off into space and the two of them drop in a ditch. And it's there in the ditch that they're described as federating where they begin to talk to each other and, and learn what Snopes has been doing and then decide on a plan. Now, a couple of things to, before we go to front. Remember that in this particular story, Chick is getting it from Gowan. Gowan is getting it from Harker, Tom Tom, Turl, Gavin, or Ratliff. That they're piecing it together. So when you, if you look at the quotation marks and you're following it, you realize there's different people telling a story at different times. It's an example of a community coming together. There's no way to have told this story. It, at one point, Harker even says, that's where I came in. That each one of them can fill in a spot so that a whole can be formed that none of them would be capable of getting on their own. If they were isolated individuals, we would never have this. This is the fruit of a community. It's a beautiful example. I mean, it's, to me, it's stunning. Well, you know what happens. Um, um, Snopes gets uncovered. And the interesting thing about this, if you go through the hamlet and the town, nobody, nobody defeats, gets the best of Flem Snopes. This is the only time, and it's two uneducated black men who turn the tables on him. What does that say about it, Faulkner's attitude towards education? <laughs> um, here, turn to 48, just quickly. And then I've, I've got a... I want to. Um, I want to try to get in a couple of readings. Um, on page forty-eight, Gowan has been stewing about Flem Snopes now for weeks, and he come and um, remember, or no, sorry, Gavin. Gowan is staying. You know that he's staying with the Mallinsons. Well, his folks are often. India or somewhere. Gavin has been stewing about the Snopes. And um, the chapter begins on page 47 with Chick saying, maybe it was because Mother and Gavin were twins that Mother knew what Uncle Gavin's trouble was just about as soon as Ratliff did. Now that's saying a lot because Ratliff is the one who knows He's on top of it. He sees what other people don't. Um, so to say that Maggie saw it, again, reaffirms this sense of the intuitive powers that women have to have a sense of something before men grasp it intellectually. She seems to be aware of something. On the next page on 48, 
Gavin is troubling. They're sitting at dinner. He's not talking. And the assumption on the part of the reader is he's stewing about phlegm. Um, but this is what happens. Um, the grandfather gets up and excuses himself. And um, the mother wants to have a moment with her brother. Maggie wants to have a moment. So she says in the middle of 48, um, the father, the grandfather thanks him and leaves in the middle of the page. Gavin would have stood there while mother and father and Uncle Gavin went out too, but not this time. Mother hadn't even moved, still sitting there and watching Uncle Gavin. She was still watching Uncle Gavin when she said to father, don't you and Gowan want to be excused too? No, ma'am, Gowan said, because he had been in the office that day when Ratliff came in and said, evening, lawyer. This is how the last chapter ended. Evening, lawyer. I just jumped in to hear the latest Snopes news, and Uncle Gavin said, what news? And Ratliff said, or do you just mean what Snopes? And sat there too looking at Uncle Gavin until at last he said, why don't you go on and say it? And Uncle Gavin said, say what? Said Ratliff said, get out of my office, Ratliff. So Gowan said, no man, he knows something's up. He thinks it has to do with Snopes. He was there, if you remember the last chapter, um, Gavin gets really irritated at Ratliff because Ratliff says, we all used to laugh at them, but we're not laughing anymore. He's beginning to see something and he's watching Gavin become disturbed about it. While Ratliff is being very calm and disinterested and watching and, and Gavin gets so irritated that he tells um, Ratliff to get out of his office. And this is what's wonderful. I mean, we're watching these friends become friends while they're getting irritated at each other and wanting to do things because there's, they're troubling over things. And so he says, get out of my office. So Gowan declines getting up from the table because he thinks something's going to come out of that meeting um, between the two friends. Then maybe you excuse me, Uncle Gavin said, putting his napkin down, but still Mother didn't move. Would you like me to call her, she said. Call on who, Uncle Gavin said, and even to Gowan, he said it too quick, because even Father caught on then. Now, clearly, nobody can see except the mother. The men are out of it. They don't have a clue what's going on. Because even Father caught on then, though I don't know about that, even if it had been there, and and no older than Gowan was, I would have known that if I had been about 21 or maybe even less when Mrs. Snopes first walked through the square, I not only would have known what was going on, I might have been, I might even have been Uncle Gavin myself, because all the men can't do anything but drool when they see this woman. Um, but Gowan said, Father sounded like he just caught on. He said to Uncle Gavin, I'll be damned. So that's what's been eating you for the past two weeks. Then he said to mother, no, by Jupiter, my wife, my wife called on that, that what Uncle Gavin said hard and quick. What was going to follow that that? What word? Is everybody clear? Okay, good. You all see that, yeah. And you know immediately Gavin's not going to allow that. The father is, I mean, he's a man of respectability. He's not going to let that woman in. Everybody knows that she's having an affair. The last thing he wants to have happen, because his father... And he knows that Maggie's father would never allow such a thing because this is this respectable town. Maggie says, do you want me to call her? <laughs> um, um, no, by Jupiter, my wife can call on that, that what? Uncle Gavin said hard and quick. 
And still Mother hadn't moved, just sitting there between them while they stood over. Sir, she said, what? <laughs> that what, sir, she said, or maybe just sir with an inflection. You name it then, Father said, don't You know what, what this whole damn town is calling her, what this whole damn town knows about her and Manfred Spade. What whole town, Uncle Gavin said, besides you? You and who else? The same ones that have been tr probably take Maggie here over the coals too without knowing any more than you do? Are you talking about my wife, Father said? <laughs> no, Uncle Gavin said. I'm talking about my sister and Mrs. Snopes. Boys, 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 Mother said. At least spare me, nephew, she said to Gowan. Gowan, don't you really want to be excused? Are you kidding? What boy in his right mind would want to leave that table right now? <laughs> Damn your nephew, Father said. I'm not going to have her aunt, his aunt. Are you talking about your wife, Uncle Gavin said? This is so funny. I, I don't know. I don't understand why the trilogy hasn't been made into a movie. Three movies. <laughs> what? Um, this time Mother stood up too between them while they both leaned a little. In. So the two men are like this with Maggie in between and the two men are ready actually close to being physical. Um, mother said, both of you apologized to me. They did. Now apologize to Gowan. Gowan said they, um, they did that too. But I'll still be damned if I'm going to let, Father said, just the apology please, Mother said. <laughs> She's keeping order here. Even if Mrs. Snope is what you say she is, as long as I'm what you and Gavin both agree I am, said at least you agree on that, how can I run any risk sitting for 10 minutes in her parlor? The trouble with both of you is you know nothing about women. Women are not interested in morals. They're not even interested in unmorals. The ladies of Jefferson don't care what she does. They will never forgive her. What they will never forgive her is the way she looks. You know the way Jefferson gentlemen look at her. Speak for your brother, Father said. I never looked at her in her life. Then so much the worse for me, Mother said, with a mole for a husband. No, moles have warm blood. I'm now with cave fish. <laughs> <laughs> so you see, we're in a very different world from the Hamlet. It's domestic life. Husband and wife are at it. What is so funny is she looks at him and calls him a mammoth because he has no, absolutely no blood. But after the ball scene when Despain and Gavin fight and Eula comes to... Chick's born a year later. I don't think that's an accident. It's Faulkner's way of saying something's stirring up people in this town. Um, going over to... The dance. I've got a, on page 75. You know what happened in the interim. Um, this is one of the saddest. I, we don't have time to read it. I wish we did. You know that one night Gavin is sitting there and suddenly he hears Despain's roadster going by and he's revving up the engine and he's doing it to insult Gavin because it's clear after Gavin orders the corsages. You know, and once he orders it for Yuli, he has to order it for all the women in the town. And once he does that, all of the husbands in the town have to order cassages for all the women. And it makes all the husbands furious at Gavin because of what he's doing to their marriages. Don't tell me this isn't a, a social world. I mean, the whole world is coming and glued in this thing. Um, one night, Gavin's sitting there and they hear to Spain's Roadster and he's revving the engine to insult him. There's that beautiful description. I, we don't have time to read it. But um, Chick is describing Gowan sitting there ashamed and embarrassed for his cousin. We call him an uncle, but he's a cousin. Because he understood exactly what was going on. 
the, the Spain is insulting this man and Gavin has to, has to tolerate. He does everything he can for the next few days to ignore those, the times when he comes by. Um, and, until finally the boys get in their head to take it on themselves. And here, by the way, think about this because Chick is learning something from Gowan. Gowan has stepped into this honor code himself because he's watching what's happening to his cousin. I want to keep saying uncle, but his cousin. So they take these tacks. Maggie, when she learns, says, don't you dare. And then she stops from him and says, I don't, um, I'm not watching, which is her permission. So they go out and spread the tacks. They don't work. So they get the idea to sharpen the, the prongs on a rake and put the rake out. So that night when Bang comes by, he actually blows a tire. And it's funny, to me, it's so comic because Maggie says to Gowan, go out and invite him in for coffee. <laughs> this is the man who's been insulting them. I mean, the sense of courtesy and respect is so great in a small town. And so Spain comes in, and, and they know that this is an antagonist, and yet they have to be civil to each other. And, and then he leaves. All the corsages are delivered for the ball, and on the night of this delivery, in addition to the corsage, Gavin gets this passage, this package, I'm sure you'll, with a rake and two, if I remember, two bow ties and a rubber, a prophylactic, tying it together. You, I mean, I read that and I just, the cruelty of, it's funny, but it's hard not to feel like Gowan, to, to watch Gavin be treated so meanly, so, I mean, really in a mean, mean way. Go on over to um, 75, 76. Um, all the people are gathered at the Cotillia Ball. Bottom of 76 is one of these wonderful lines. I mean, like Uncle Gavin said, that there are some men who are incorrigibly and invincibly bachelor no matter how often they marry. Just as some men are doomed and immaculate husbands, he's doing everything he can to defend the honor of this um, woman. On 78, in the middle of the page, it describes Despain taking Mrs. Snopes, you look, out on the floor, dancing like that with Mrs. Snopes to take revenge on Uncle Gavin for having frightened him. Apparently, the, the dancing posture of the two is so suggestive that all of the people watch on in aghast, shocked. And it's at that point that Gavin is so offended that he goes up and he jerks Despain away. The two men go out into the alley and Despain gives um, Ratliff, or Gavin a beating. Uh, down at the bottom of 79. But Uncle Gavin wasn't trying anymore to destroy or even hurt Mr. Despain because he had already found out by that time that he couldn't because now Uncle Gavin was himself again. What he was doing was simply defending forever with his blood the principle that chastity and virtue in women shall be defended whether they exist or not. He's very much a Don Quixote figure. If, for those of you who know the story, you know that Don Quixote loved Dulcinea, who was a prostitute, and did everything he could for her. So that the ironies of the, the, the courtly romance tradition really get picked up there. And they're being carried forward right now in Faulkner, what he's doing. Um, on page 80, the mother comes in to fix them up and offers him a rose. Here, she says, she sent it to you. You lie, Uncle Gavin said. You did it. 
Lie yourself, Mother said. She sent it. No, Uncle Gavin said. Then she should have. You fool, you fool. They don't deserve you. They aren't good enough for you. None of them are, no matter how much they look and act like like goddamn, um, like a goddamn whorehouse. None of them. None of them. She's furious because she's watching her brother get beaten up for trying to do something good. And the, the, the scene ends with, the chapter ends with that comic scene of, of Sally, um, Sally's old high school beau sending her a corsage, and then after Spain gets through with Gavin, um, Maurice takes Grenier, the old, the old boyfriend, out into the alley and beats him up. And the next chapter begins with Sally, a description of Sally coming into doubt with her black eye. Um, um, you know what happens after this. I, we don't have time. I wish we did. In the next chapter, Gavin takes the Spain to court. And he tries to use the, the power plant episode to show that Despain was negligent. He has no case. It's a trumped up case, and, and what's funny about it, when you read the chapters, you see all this lawyer language. He inflates all this language to try to make it seem like there's something important there. And everybody knows there's nothing there. And the judge has that funny comment where he says, I'll see you tomorrow in chambers. He recuses himself and has his father, Gavin's father, step in. But there's that funny line where he says, I'll see you in chambers tomorrow. You can bring your counselors, or should I say, seconds. <laughs> because it's, tr it's treated like a duel. And the next day, um, or that night, Eula comes in and offers him herself. Um, I'll have to read that next time. The next day, Gavin goes to the meeting, and he, dis he withdraws the, the case. And shortly after that, he leaves for war. And he, and he leaves um, saying to Ratliff, I'm passing on the torch to you. You're in charge, and you've got to watch the Snopes. And that's where you are here. Just quickly, why does Faulkner use this, these multiple narrators and narrators who differ in age so much? What's, he's, what's he doing there? I don't think that's just a technical thing. What's he doing? I think he's trying to give us um, multi-faceted. Yeah. Different interpretations based on Different perspectives, more complete, less biased, because you get it from different angles. Um, and not just different people, but different people in life. Young people, peers. Educated, non-educated, yeah. Right. Yeah, just the spectrum, broad, 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 broad angle, broad band. Broad I think there's something else too that's really. But because it's from a child, it's very um, the scope is brought in. The child doesn't understand exactly what they're. So it allows yeah. you. There's what? It allows the reader to kind of use their maturity to fill in. Yeah. It, it, it makes it, it makes you have to fill in the blank because a child is telling you the story, and anytime a child is telling you the story, you're at least in my mind, I was I was thinking. Yeah, Ratliff and Gavin fill in a lot of blanks in this. I think my own sense of it is that um, this story is very much about a community beginning to take responsibility for evil, and the fact. He brings Gavin in to show, we saw in the Hamlet a community practically asleep, too innocent. It did not take responsibility for evil, they just watched it. In the town we're watching the same thing, 
But while the whole town tends to stand on a watch, we know that Gavin and Ratliff are not, and neither is Gowan. Gowan's suffering for his, I keep wanting to say uncle, for his cousin, you know. He really does suffer. Gowan is, is growing into an honor code, a chivalry code, by what's happening. I think the reason he brings in Chick, and remember this, Chick isn't born yet when all this is happening. He's not born yet, and he will survive it. So everything that's happening will be passed on. Let me put this differently. How many parents today, I'm, I'm saying this just in terms of the catechism, or how many parents today actually help their kids prepare to deal with evil in the world? The, the tendency in our culture is to prepare, prepare kids to be successful. Be smart, get an education, make money. How many parents do what Gavin and Ratliff are doing with Chick and Gowan? I mean, we're watching, we're wa I'm really saying, I'm saying this really seriously, we're watching a community learn to deal with evil. Chick's brought in in this. He's not even born yet, and he's clearly taking it seriously enough that he's a part of the narrative. And he's going to outlive these men. He will survive them. So I think Faulkner's showing us it was there before we were born. Right. All of us. It will be there later. Are we doing what we should be doing to answer this stuff? So it's not just it's not just two men, it's two men and a boy and another boy, in a sense, who are being tutored. These are their mentors. Gowan's learning something, so is Chick. And it seems to me, it, it, it shows that Faulkner is aware that for a community to hold itself together, it cannot just be present-oriented. I mean, America lives so much in the present. Because something existed before we came into it. Something's going to survive us. Are we really doing our part as a community without preparing to deal with it. I mean, what are we doing with our children to help them deal with evil? Particularly in a culture that's given so much to money and success. The acquisitive thing that we've been watching in every one of, practically every chapter we've been reading. So I don't think the narrative structure is an accident. I think that's integral to the theme. It's at, he's showing us that's part of what goes on. That's, that's part of what this book is about in a major way. Let's stop, because I want to, I've, I've said, I really, I want to be better about getting this out. <clears throat>